Uh, we are in what is almost definitely the last week of our sermon series. I mean, you never know. You just got to be open because you never know. You make plans and sometimes they change. But it's almost definitely the last week of our really lighthearted, sort of jovial, happy sermon series titled Betrayed, Lonely, and Misunderstood. And if you're like me, you see this sermon title and you're just like, Carl, come on, I've got enough in my life already. I don't need my sermon titles to also make me feel down. So you're in luck, right? You're in luck because, like we've said already, we celebrated the resurrection. And we celebrated the resurrection last week. We celebrate it every week. It is the central truth of our Christian faith. And because of the resurrection, the reality of our suffering, no matter what it is, right? We talked the last three weeks. No matter what our suffering, Jesus has suffered. No matter what our temptations, Jesus has been tempted. No matter what we go through, Jesus knows that. But Jesus didn't come just to be with us in our suffering. He most certainly did. But he didn't just come for that. He came to destroy the very cause of all our suffering. So we're going to take this sermon series, this title, and we're going to, we're going to bring it to its completion with just the smallest but really significant -ist I got stuck in that word. I had to go to the end. Uh, significant, most, most, whatever. Update, which is betrayed, lonely, misunderstood, and at peace. And here's the big idea. I think because of the resurrection, no matter our circumstances, through Christ, we can know and have true peace always. It's a big idea. Now, we have to spend a little time to go, ah, really, Carl? Is that really? I don't know. And if you're like that, then good. Um, here's my invitation. Buckle up. Because normally, I like to have one passage. And I like to just sit in that passage and go deep in that passage. But today, we're, we're throwing that out. I want you, if you've got a Bible, open it. If you've got a Bible app, get your fingers nimble. Because we're going to be moving around and just, just keep up if you can. Uh, I'm going to put the words on the screen, but as you know, whenever I'm listening to a preacher, I read the text they read. I like to see what comes before it and after it and see. I always ask myself, why'd they stop there? How come they didn't include those words? After? So I want you to do that too. It's, it's just it's a good way to do it. We're going to be in a bunch of different scriptures this morning. Um, starting in the letter that a guy named Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we call that letter Romans. See how we did that? He wrote it to the church in Rome, so we call it Romans. That's what, that's what we did. Um, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we are jumping in. Anybody ready for a little, little Bible study? little good old-fashioned Bible study? Yeah. No, nobody is. All right, that's all right. We're going to do it anyway. We're going to do it anyway. Here we go. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel. Uh, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, 
was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Romans is interesting. It's kind of unique among his letters. See, most of the letters that Paul writes, he's writing to people that he's got a well-established relationship with. Most of the letters he writes, he writes after he went to a town, he proclaimed the good news of Christ, he planted a church, and now he's writing kind of follow-up letters to continue encouraging these people in faith. But the letter to the Romans, most likely, we don't know for sure. I wasn't there. I didn't get a video of, of it all. But most likely, Paul had not yet been to Rome to preach in Rome. So what we think the letter to Romans might be, I'm convinced this is what it is, is Paul saying, you know what, normally when I plant a church, I start with kind of my standard sermons on what is the gospel, what are its implications for Jesus followers. Paul kind of probably had some set sermons he preached whenever he founded a church. But since he hadn't preached in Rome yet, some people think the letter to the Romans is his standard introductory teaching. And he says throughout the letter, he's like, hey, hey, people in Rome, and I know some of you, but like I haven't planted the church there. Just so you know, I'm coming. I hope to be there. I hope to get there someday. But in the meantime, here is the teaching of the gospel that I want you to know. So Paul writes a letter to some people he doesn't know all that well. He writes a letter that's introducing his understanding of who Christ is and what the gospel is, and he starts that letter with this phrase, grace and peace to you. If I were to pick a really contrasting letter to the letter to the Romans, I would pick 1st and 2nd Corinthians. See, the Romans... Paul doesn't know him. It's the introduction. It's like a, hey, get to know you. When you write a get to know you letter, you probably write one similar to the book of Romans, don't you? Just dense theological reflection chapter after chapter. Well, the letters that we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians are probably, in fact, only two of many more letters Paul exchanged with the church in Corinth. Because he planted that church, he has deep friendships with the people in that church. You can see references throughout the letter to people from Corinth coming and visiting Paul, to Paul sending people on his behalf to Corinth. These two letters are actually us stepping into the middle of an ongoing dialogue. So he writes a letter to Romans, people he doesn't know so well, an introduction, and he starts that letter with grace and peace. He writes two letters to the Corinthians, people he knows and he's in ongoing conversation with, and he starts those letters with Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. 
for anybody looking for a good name for maybe a new baby boy, Sosthenes. Oh, such a good name. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The very first letter of the ones that we have, the very first letter Paul ever wrote is almost definitely his letter to the church in Galatia, which we call Galatians. You guys picking up on a theme here, right? There is a theme to how we've named these letters. His very first letter to the Galatians starts with, to the church in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty likely the very last two letters he writes are not in fact to a church per se, they're to an individual named Timothy who's somebody that Paul is mentoring, a young leader who he's raising up in his leadership in the church. In the very last letter Paul writes, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, starts with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Or again, 2 Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promises of life, with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Every single letter that Paul writes, that we have, he starts out with grace and peace to you from God through Christ. And it's not just Paul. We have two letters written by the disciple named Peter. Both of Peter's letters start with grace and peace. John wrote three little letters only the second one started with grace and peace. One and three, I don't know, they were too short, he didn't have time. But also John's revelation, the last book in our scripture, starts with grace and peace. Over and over and over again, Paul, whatever he's writing about, if he's writing his theological education, if he's writing leadership material for a young church leader, if he's writing advice to a congregation for how to continue living out their faith, in all of those circumstances, he starts with grace and peace. So it makes me wonder to myself, it just makes me wonder, what would it look like in my life in your life, what would it look like if every conversation we had, every interaction, every decision, every dialogue, every choice began with grace and peace? The word grace um, gets a lot of press in Christian circles, a lot of songs with the word grace in it, and for good reason. I want to talk to you about this word grace. Um, if you were an ancient Greek-speaking, Greek-writing 
person in the first century. Just imagine that. I know you spend time imagining that regularly, so you should easily be able to go there, right? You're sitting down and you're going to write a letter. When you write a letter, you almost certainly start it with the word Kyrene. Everybody say Kyrene. Good job. See, you're, you're already there. Kyrene means grace, but it's a form of the word that pretty much just means, hello, hey, how you doing? I'm starting a letter, so I write Kyrene. That's normal way to start a letter. But Paul makes a small change that made a big difference to anybody who would have read it. He didn't use Kyrene, he used a different form. Charis, grace. It's a word that even early on in Jesus' life gets attached to a pretty significant part of who Jesus is. If you remember um, kind of what we have about Jesus' early life, we have a bunch of stories about his birth, right? Angels singing Silent Night and the manger and all that stuff. And then we have his three years of public ministry, which take up most of it. But there's this big chunk of Jesus' childhood that we know almost nothing about. Like, what was going on? What was he doing? Where'd he go? Was he playing Minecraft? Because that's as far as I know, that's what all middle schoolers do, right? So like, what was Jesus doing in that time? I don't know. The gospel writer Luke gives us one little glimpse about that big chunk of time. Luke chapter two, verse 40 says, and the child, Jesus, grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. You can go pick up a bunch of different books on grace. I actually have been rereading the awesome, I, I forgot how awesome it was, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. If you've not read it, just, you could probably just stand up and leave and go buy it right now, and that would be a good choice. Be a little awkward, but it would be a good choice. But I just read definition after definition of people trying to capture, like, what's so amazing about grace? Here's some of my favorite definitions. Favor, joy, pleasure, goodness. Paul starts every letter he writes, and he's just like, joy. I just, all of it's, it's all joy. I want that to be the tone of everything we're talking about. Scholars write things like, Grace is the central feature of the salvation event. Oh, we could talk about that forever. But, but what is it that made God say, I'm going to come down and I'm going to look at this hurting, broken, messed up world. And what am I going to do? I'm going to save it. That's what I'm going to do. Why? Grace. The free, spontaneous, unmerited favor of God. You didn't earn it. It's not because you proved yourself or you're in the right club or the category. It is just unmerited and spontaneous. What would it be like if our lives had that kind of flavor to them every day? Speaking of awesome names for young boys, my favorite definition was written by a guy named Spiros Zodiatis. Oh, why don't I know more people named Spiros in my life? Here's how he defined it. Grace, a favor 
done without expectation of return, the absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. It's like God is just sitting there going, I am so full, I am so overfull, I have such a bounty, such an endless volume of grace that I just can't help but pour it out on other people. Grace. And, Paul says, grace and peace. Now, peace, we got to really get into it because Paul was a smart guy. He was born and raised and educated in the best Jewish education available. And so he spoke fluently both Hebrew, the language of his Jewish faith, and Greek, the language of commerce and society in his day. So if we're going to define peace, we have to go to both of these languages. As you may know, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Everybody say shalom. Now, when we hear the word peace in our English language, the temptation is to go to kind of a minimalist definition, which says peace is just, if I'm not fighting with anybody, then I'm at peace. The root of the word shalom actually means to make complete or fulfill. Shalom has more to do with things becoming how they're supposed to be than necessarily with whether or not we're fighting with one another. Another definition. Friendship, happiness, well-being, prosperity, salvation, which are in fact the way God designed humans to be in relationship with one another. Or the restoration of the fullness of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is simply the way that God wants things to be so that he can say, yep, that's right. If I can look at it, God says, if I can look at it and say that's right, then that is my righteousness at work showing up. And shalom is when we finally make things the way God wanted them to be. But of course, the Greek word that Paul used is not shalom. It is Eirene. Everybody say, Eirene. Oh, that's just a good one. Uh, Eirene has implications of things like tranquility, wholeness, well-being, and the salvation of the total person. In almost all of the New Testament examples, it's used to describe a quality of God that has implications for humans. Peace is something that belongs to God. We don't have to conjure it up or create it or make it. It is who God is, and that has bearing on our lives. It's also interesting because peace is used one time in the New Testament in a future tense. Every other instance, in the verb form, it is a present tense verb. Peace is something God has designed, not for someday, I hope you get there, oh, maybe someday I'll fly away. I like that hymn, but still. But rather, peace is something for us now. Grace and peace. One author described the significance, oh yeah, so peace at the deepest level. I wrote in the altar email, I said, does anybody here when you look at your life, would you be willing to say, you know what, I'd like, I, I'll, if I'm honest, I would like a little more peace at the deepest level. I think everybody wants that. 
One author talked about grace and peace this way. Grace and peace, therefore, states that the Old Testament dream for the future is being fulfilled. And therefore, it becomes an epitome of all that is central and essential in the Christian religion. Paul's conviction on how available and powerful peace is went so deep that he even said this to the church in Philippi. Uh, His letter to the Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Paul said to that church, this is how deep peace went to him. He said, Rejoice in the Lord always. We could do a little word study on that. You know what it means? Yeah, always, that's what it means. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase, transcends understanding. What that means is, if I have a peace, and I can think about the peace that I experience, and I can go, you know what? I think I can understand how and why and what caused this peace. If I have that, then I have failed to grasp God's peace, because God's peace is so great, it's so big, that it actually goes beyond something I can understand. If I can understand it, it is way, way, way less than the peace that God wants to give us. When I was thinking about grace and peace, uh, I summarized it, I tried to summarize it, and here's how I summarized it. Um, Peace is the promised result of God's grace in our lives, regardless of circumstances. And I say that last phrase, regardless of circumstances, not because I think that's easy or clever to say, but because when I look at the stories of God's people in Scripture, I see evidence of God's grace and peace coming through in impossible circumstances. And I say impossible because when I'm really honest, When I'm honest about the challenges that I face or that I know we face in our lives, I find myself asking the question, how could it be that we actually have peace in the midst of so much suffering that is real in the world? How could that really be? But then I read the stories of God's people. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Again, the Apostle Paul The man who just wrote, there is a peace that surpasses understanding. Paul's been traveling and things are going kind of rough for him. He has some hard times going around preaching the gospel. People don't like him for it. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 22, Paul says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing... What will happen to me there? I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim 
is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The word there, testify, in the Greek is marturos. It's the word from which we get martyr. Martyr means I'm going to give my actual life. I'm going to take my last breath with this one hope that people wouldn't see my life, but they would see my life pointing towards the good news of God's grace. And Paul knew what suffering was. There's a story in the Bible about some people grabbing Paul and they threw him off a cliff because they wanted to kill him. But that didn't kill him. So they saw him at the bottom of the cliff and they literally took rocks and tried to throw him and land them on his head to kill him. When Paul was in prison for years, he had to arrange for his own food in prison. The Romans were like, yeah, we're not going to give you food because we kind of hope you just die. That'd be easier for us, but we can't kill you. But if you want to get yourself food, good luck. You know what? Paul was in prison when he wrote the words, the peace that surpasses all understanding. If anybody understands what suffering looks like, Paul understands it. And he said, there's peace available because of God's grace. Where does it come from? He gave us one of the most beautiful illustrations in scripture when he wrote his letter to the Galatians, chapter 5. Starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So I just find myself going, what would it look like? What would it look like if I'm in that moment, right? I'm in the heat of the moment. I'm in battle. Somebody has said something to me, and I've thought to myself, ooh, I've got a good thing to say in response to them. Not that I would ever think that, just hypothetically. Or somebody has done something to me, and I go, ooh, I know what I could do in response to them. Not that any of you would ever think something like that, but just hypothetically. And you know there's those moments when you're, you know, the temperature has risen and your like, fists are coming up, hypothetically, and you kind of pause and you have those out-of-body moments and you stop and you look at yourself and you go, is that really what you're going to do right now? Right? And you're like, yeah, you bet it's what I'm going to do. And then you have the little argument with your, you know what I'm talking about? Do you guys do this as well? I hope I'm not embarrassing myself with this, right? What would it be like if in that moment I asked myself, is this? Is this word I'm going to say? Is this action I'm going to take? Is this of the Spirit? Would this grow the fruit of God's Spirit the way Scripture tells me to? Does this point towards, does this martyr or testify to God's grace and peace? The example that um, is the foundation of them all is the example of Christ himself. If you read the end of each of the Gospels, you get different glimpses of the last moment of Jesus' life, and each author focuses on a different aspect. But the Gospel of Luke, um, Luke is talking about how Christ has been betrayed by his friend. He's been brutally mistreated, tortured. 
in excruciating ways, and he's just been nailed to the cross and hung up on the cross. And the very soldiers who have just inflicted this unbearable harm on him, the very soldiers at whose hand he is about to die, they're sitting at the cross mocking Jesus. They're mocking him as they're killing him. And Luke records some words that Jesus spoke at that moment. Jesus looked at them and said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And as if to prove that point, the very next words Luke writes are, and then the soldiers cast lots to see who got Jesus' clothing. Boy, did they not understand Paul starts every letter that he writes with these two words that we could miss them because they show up every time, but I think they might be the foundation of his understanding of the gospel, grace and peace. And so we ask ourselves, what, what does that look like in my life? What do I do with that? How, do I, how might I live such a grace and peace kind of life as Jesus himself, as the apostle Paul, as others who have gone through? How do I do that? I'm going to pivot now. I'm going to go a little more lighthearted for a second. We did the Bible study, and now uh, we're going to go a little lighthearted, and then we're going to go a little more heavy, and I'm going to ask you one question at the end. Um, I was at Disney World, the place you always need to talk about to understand grace and peace. Um, I was on what's probably uh, one, one of our family's favorite rides. It was in Animal Kingdom, the Kali River Rapids. Um, if you've been there, it's like a, you know, it's like a giant raft and you each strap into your own seat and you're seated around the raft. And no matter where you sit, you are going to get a little wet on this ride. There are waterfalls, there's cannon spray things, there's like you go down some rapid slide things in the water. No matter what, you're going to get a little wet. But if you sit in the right seat or the wrong seat, you are going to get absolutely soaking wet. And I happened to sit in the seat where I got absolutely soaking wet. So soaking wet that you get out of the boat, you know, and you're like, I can't even walk because my clothes are like stuck to me. And apparently I did this on purpose. It's all for the kids. I love the kids, but now I'm soaking wet. But this really interesting thing happened, right? I was drenched in the water and I got out and I'm doing the walk, but it wasn't very long until the scorching heat of the Florida sun dried out my clothes for me. I wondered to myself, is that sometimes how we go about life in God's grace? We have moments, we have times, we have seasons where we get ourselves soaked, immersed fully in God's grace, but I think if we're honest, we go walking out and pretty soon the scorching heat of this world makes us feel a little dry. Not because the grace isn't there. That's certainly not the reason. But we just find ourselves getting dried out. There's a kind of a theme in my own life. Um, I was actually talking to somebody after the first service and I realized I, I don't talk about it often because I think maybe, I've, maybe it's been there so long on and off that I've almost forgotten it's a really weighty matter for me. Um, 
that there's a theme in my life. The first time I noticed it was my sophomore year of college. And I didn't have a name for it. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't understand it. But what I experienced was I'd be walking to class. I'd be in some sort of in-between moment. You know, nothing's really going on. Uh, and I would get this sickness in my stomach. And I had all these hypotheses about what was going on. I thought, well, maybe I'm lactose intolerant. I have no idea why I thought maybe I was lactose intolerant, but I kid you not, I cut out dairy for like a month and a half, and it made no difference. It would never show up when I was in the middle of something active, exciting, when I was at Frisbee practice or on a run or, or really having fun, hanging out with friends. It never showed up, but in those quiet times, I would get the sickness, and it would, it would just... I wouldn't want to eat, and it, and it was weird. Well, it kind of like got stronger, and then it, and it kind of went away for a while, so I thought, ah, maybe, you know, who, who knows? It was indigestion, and I'm fine. But I found that over the next few years, after my sophomore year of college, it would come and go in these seasons. It would disappear, and I'd go, oh, neat. I can forget about it now. I don't, I'm not having it, so I'm fine with it. But then it would come back. I'd ask myself, is something causing it? Is there like a circumstance? Is there a situation? Are there, are there experience? Is there something causing it? And I, I couldn't for the life of me point to anything in particular that caused it. I asked myself, what can I do to alleviate it, help it get better? I finally become, I think, self-aware enough to, to realize that it had a name. I'm, I'm not a professional in this area, but, but the name most certainly is true to my experience. Uh, it's something that a lot of people have named anxiety. And I've spent a lot of time saying, if God's grace and peace are real, could it even be so real that it could ease some of the anxiety I feel? I, I can't point to the thing that causes it. I, I can't but I just know it, it comes and it goes, and it's been decades. And in just the last five years or so, I've grown in some practices that have made the most tangible difference for me personally in terms of my experience of anxiety. Um, if I were to put a name on these practices, I would simply call it prayer. But I've been, I've been a praying person for a very, very long time, and I've prayed in many different ways, and I've prayed specifically about this. I've said, God, what's going on? Help me understand. Would you take it away? And, and for many years, I can't honestly say that the prayer made a noticeable difference to me. But I was introduced to a new form of prayer, that made all the difference. Now, I, I'm going to describe that prayer, but I'm just going to name something. Uh, you know, Jesus said, when you pray, go in your closet and do it in secret. Don't do it out in public. Or he said, when you fast, you know, do it in secret so nobody knows. Don't, don't go. And so I'm like, ah, how do you talk about prayer without teachings, Jesus? Well, I, I'll just say it as I'm going to share my experience with the hope that as a fellow traveler on this shared journey of transformation, my experience might be encouraging to you. Um, but the prayer that was introduced to me that was a new paradigm was a prayer that many called silence. So much of my prayer is filled with content. Anybody know what it's like to have prayers that are filled with content? Now, I'm, I've got no problems with that. I think we've got good reason for that. 
But my content-rich prayers weren't making all that much of a difference. Well, it turns out prayer has been known and experienced and taught in so many different ways throughout the Christian faith. And so here's the practice that was introduced to me that I do um, many days, almost every week, and I have been for years. Uh, I almost always, I, I most often do it first thing in the morning. But I've got four little kids, so sometimes they wake up early and take the morning away. So sometimes I do it first thing when I get into the office. And here's what I do. Um, I'll sit in a chair, just sit there, usually comfortably. Uh, I'll often turn on music, which is funny because that doesn't mean it's silence anymore, but you know, whatever, we can still call it silence. And I'll set a 20 minute timer. And I'll set it down and I'll click start. I'll close my eyes. I usually take a few big deep breaths. I find that to be calming. And then I sit. Sometimes I find if I am just noticing the way my chest rises and falls when I breathe, um, it's kind of, it's, it's for me a meaningful reminder that God is actually closer to me than even the breath in my lungs. I was thinking about that prayer when I was writing this sermon and I realized, oh, the reason that kind of prayer is so powerful, for me at least, I think, is because in silence, I think I'm soaking in God's grace. Let me ask you, what would it look like if our lives were soaked, saturated, marinated, drenched every single day in God's grace? And we know how much difference it can make to soak things, right? That shirt that you have that has a stain, and if you just throw it in the wash, it doesn't go away. You've got to soak it in the tub overnight. Like you're grilling chicken, and instead of just splashing the Italian dressing on it, you put it in the marinade the night before so it can soak the flavor into it. Some things take time to get them deep into our bones. So I've got one question. The question is, as always, the question of what's your move going to be? And I'm going to preface the question with just one encouragement. Um, whatever your answer to this question might be, I hope, I hope we answer this question with action. Here's my question. When you think about your life, and all the things that you might be struggling with, facing, dealing with, challenges, how are you soaking in God's grace? Would you pray with me? God, I, I, I couldn't even fathom what each and every one of us faces each day in our lives. There's so much difference. There's so much diversity. Um, everything from the most joyful joys to the most heartbreaking sorrows. But here's what I know. Your grace is enough. And it produces in us a peace that is more than we could ever even comprehend. Help us, God. Show us specific times, specific places, specific ways in our lives. Help us to be people whose lives are soaked 
in your grace. Amen.